Good morning. It is good to be together. It is good to see you, to imagine you on the other side of the camera. Uh, it is a good thing to be able to sit there. I love, I love to watch um, the services together with you and to see the little names uh, kind of float by on the side there as we, as we uh, partake in this together, as we are the body of Christ uh, together. I trust you've been encouraged already this morning. And as we dig into the sermon, that uh, your hearts are prepared to hear what it is that God would uh, speak to you through this. So I'm going to open up in prayer and then we'll get into the sermon. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are here with us. As we prepare to dive into, to get into this tough question series, as we recognize, God, the ways in which there are so many uh, tough questions that need to be answered. And, and when we think of the first six months of this year, God, and the different things that have gone on, when we think about the unrest in the States um, with these uh, Black, Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter protests, with the death of George Floyd, when we think about uh, what the coronavirus has done, uh, what COVID-19 has done to the world, um, there are questions, there are doubts, there are fears, um, there are things that we wrestle with. And so help us to know how to engage with that well with you, Jesus. We know that you love to be in relationship with us, to be in conversation with us. We know that it's a back and forth and that you're not scared of our doubt or our fears. So help us to understand as we go through this sermon today, as we look at the life of Jacob uh, and his wrestling with you, what that means for us as we enter into this series of dealing with these difficult things in life, these difficult questions. In your name, amen. So, uh, last week I did say that we would be starting up a tough question series today, and, and I wanted to take uh, the first series, uh, the first sermon rather in the series, to dive into the ideas behind why we would do a series like this and maybe to dive into the posture or the spirit that I believe we should be approaching a series like this with. How do we ask difficult questions in the right way? How do we wonder about what we do and don't know about God, about the Bible, or about heaven or hell, or about religion, or about ethics, or about social justice in a God-honoring way? And, and maybe even a more basic question is, is it okay to ask these sorts of questions, to second guess or to want to know more about these sorts of things? Is it okay to doubt or to wonder or to research? Because certainly some of you will have grown up in church traditions that would have strongly discouraged questioning, that would have discouraged looking into difficult issues, that would have called you to simply take things at face value, to simply trust. Uh, and, and said that trying to understand the reasons behind things is at best a sign of weakness and at worst a grave sin in your life. Something that would separate you from God or push you away from the church. And, and many of us to varying degrees over our lives have felt a level of doubt or a level of guilt about wanting to dig into or about wondering or about being uncertain about some of these difficult topics. So does that mean that we don't trust? Or does it mean that we don't have enough faith? For some reason this week, when I started to prepare for this sermon, when I sat down, I had time allotted to write this thing, 
and sat down in front of the computer and began to sort of build this sermon, it was difficult for me. I, I wrestled with it. I went back and forth to different ideas. I would head in one direction, then I would stop, and I would back up, and I would head in another one. I, I had this idea that I wanted to cover Jacob, and specifically this sort of wrestling match that we see. But for one reason or another, it just wasn't clicking. I wasn't able to gather my thoughts together. So sending out the bulletin was a really helpful step for me because among other things, what it did is it forced my hand. It forced me to sort of focus in or zone in on this passage and on these questions. I had finally decided what piece of scripture I was going to be working on and which direction I would head. So maybe that's appropriate or, or right for us for a series that we're beginning on tough questions and for the scripture that we're going to be covering today in Genesis 32. Maybe that's not all bad that there was some struggle or wrestling that went into this on my end in terms of coming up with this sermon. Uh, maybe that's a good sort of first step for me as I engaged or, or got into this material. And what's beautiful about where we've landed today is that this sermon actually serves very much as a bridge between what we're coming out of, this Promises of God series, and the one that we're walking into. So in setting up our series of tough questions, what we're going to do is take a look at one more promise of God to Jacob. We're going to zero in on this wild story of Jacob wrestling with God and see what it has to say to us about wrestling well. I think this story in this passage has much to teach us about how God views wrestling with him and his word. And so I'm excited uh, to dig into that with you today. But first, as we so often do in these sermons, what I want to do is zoom out just a little bit and go through the backstory of Jacob to take a look at what got us to this point that we're seeing here in Genesis 32 in the first place. Now, many parts of Jacob's story are very, very familiar to you, so we're not going to spend too much time on this, but we're just going to sort of zoom through his life as it's reflected in the chapters leading up to this. So Jacob from his very birth, was somebody who was looking out for number one, who had a chip on his shoulder, who had something to prove, and who was willing to do whatever it took to get what he wanted. The name Jacob, in fact, has been translated many different ways. Some people have said that the name means liar or deceiver or manipulator. It's been talked about as meaning somebody who circumvents or, or tries to get around things, somebody who, who's an overreacher, who's reaching out for more than they deserve. And names uh, are hugely significant in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, it seems. And so it's quite something that his parents would choose this name for him. Uh, I should note here, uh, I know we've got a couple of Jakes or Jacobs that might be tuning in. Um, the modern definition of the name Jacob doesn't carry nearly this sort of baggage with it. But for this Jacob in this place, people who study the Bible have come to believe that this name did carry a lot of baggage for Jacob. It became loaded with meaning. And it's hugely significant that from the very beginning, he was given this label. He was identified as a liar and a cheater and an, and an overreacher. And through a combination of nature, he was fighting with his brother before he ever came out of the womb, and nurture, uh, Jacob's relationship with his mother certainly didn't help him to become more trustworthy. Jacob fills out the definitions of his name very well over his life. He's born into the world, second place, grabbing at the heel of his brother, which is actually another possible meaning of the name. Uh, the Hebrew word for heel is akeb, which is very similar to the Hebrew Jacob. 
and also a possible source for it. But there's dysfunction in the family, and the squabbling doesn't end there. And in fact, it's more than just Jacob. The whole family is filled with dysfunctional relationships. It's interesting to read through the story in Genesis. You could do it sometime just to kind of map out the dynamics. But it's incredibly fractured. Isaac never speaks to Jacob. Jacob and Esau have nothing to do with each other growing up. Rachel never speaks to Esau. It's, it's a fractured and messy family with everyone looking out for their own interests. And as these twin boys reach maturity and Isaac plans to hand out a blessing to his eldest and favorite son Esau, Jacob, along with his mother, plots this plan to steal Esau's birthright away. Uh, and there's this complex sort of heist that is put into action and through a series of risky tricks and manipulation and sort of conniving, they manage to get this blessing. Jacob gets this blessing from Isaac and then immediately has to flee in order to be avoid being killed by his angry brother Esau, who has been tricked. So he travels to his uncle's house, to Laban's house, and here he finally meets his match in terms of manipulation. Uh, he works for seven years once he's there to marry this girl of his dreams, Rachel, Laban's daughter. But on the wedding night, Laban swaps Rachel for her older sister, Leah. It's a taste of his own medicine. Jacob is receiving some of what he's given out over his life. But credit to Jacob, where credit is due, he works another seven years in order to marry Rachel as well. And they turn out to be a wonderful match, uh, maybe too wonderful, because Rachel turns out to be a deceptive person as well and, and the two of them end up planning to steal from Laban while he's out with the flocks and so they kind of gather their household and belongings together and then steal from Laban and take off on the run heading back to Jacob's homeland. As they're approaching uh, Jacob's homeland where he grew up he, they receive word that Esau is coming out to meet them with 400 men and this is a move that uh, understandably Jacob interprets as a threat. And in a desperate move, he splits up his party into two groups so that if one group gets attacked, the other group is going to survive. So even in these most bleak of circumstances, we see Jacob's character. He's someone who always has a plan. He's always got a next step. He always is trying to figure out a way to outwit or outsmart his opponents. Uh, he arranges a caravan of gifts that are carefully staggered to kind of overwhelm Esau with generosity. Not all at once, but these waves of gifts that are supposed to arrive, that are, that are meant as a peace offering in hopes that they're going to calm Esau's anger. Uh, but despite these measures, Jacob, to put it lightly, is not in a good place. Years of trickery and selfishness have caught up to him. He has Laban behind him, who has agreed to leave him alone, but certainly isn't interested in having him back. And in front, he has Esau, his brother, who was out to kill him years ago, who stole he stole from and he ran. He's burned bridges in every direction of his life. He's got nowhere left to hide. And so as night approaches, he tells his immediate family to leave him. He sends them and the last of his possessions away across a stream, and he finds himself alone in what must have been an oppressively dark night, facing this crisis that he has built for himself over a lifetime of deception and double-mindedness and manipulation and self-centeredness, dealing with the fact that his actions now have put his own life and the life of those he loves at risk, not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring. And so we read again the verses in Genesis, starting in Genesis 32 verse 24. Should have flipped there earlier.
So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Jacob was alone, or he starts out alone, maybe, but he wasn't for long, for suddenly he is wrestling with a man, a man who, as the night progresses and the dawn grows nearer, he gradually begins to realize uh, is an angel of God, or perhaps God himself. It's a strange and a wonderful story. It's hard to grasp, and we're dropped into it without a lot of explanation. That's the beauty and the frustration of much of the Bible, especially these early books, it feels like. You wish that Moses, who wrote this book, would have taken a bit more time to to flesh out the setting here, to give some context. But instead, there's this life-changing moment that just sort of happens in a matter-of-fact way, and it's so important that we step back and realize the incredible nature of this. Around Jacob was stillness, the murmur of a brook over stones, the depth of heaven above and the stars, and there he sits considering the past, anticipating the future, working through the mistakes and the errors that brought him to this place. Do you ever have those moments at night, a restlessness, a sudden wash of the things that you've done wrong, the ways that you've failed, the things that you haven't said correctly, the ways in which you haven't measured up or how you've hurt other people. Jacob sits here in his own Garden of Gethsemane, separated from his friends and his family who have moved on, alone with God. And then, suddenly, somehow, together with God, wrestling with God, This is an incredible story, and there's a lot that we can draw from this. But today, as we prepare to enter into a series on tough questions, what I want to look closely at is what does this teach us about God's relationship with us and about God's character, and what does it teach us about wrestling? And so what we're going to do is is we're going to walk through three points with the time that we have left that sort of open up this theme of wrestling with God and how it works. So the first point is this. God is willing to engage with us in our wrestling. He's willing. For our 10th anniversary this year, we got ourselves a king bed, a fancy mattress with memory foam, a new frame. The whole setup uh, cost about as much as my first vehicle, and you can guess for yourself if that speaks to the quality of my mattress or the uh, quality of my first vehicle, or a little bit of both. Um, But it's been good. We've slept great. We've been happy with the upgrade. Um... But the person in our house who probably has been the most pumped about this new purchase and maybe got the most excitement and joy out of it 
uh, could be Sebastian. He'd certainly be in the running. Uh, he immediately claimed the bed as his wrestling ring. Several times a week, he'll come up to me and say, and he always says it in exactly the same way. He says, Daddy, do you want to have a real fight? None of this uh, tickling nonsense. He wants a full-on WWE SmackDown. And I'm sure it's only a year or two before we start to introduce ladders and folding chairs into the mix. And, and the bed is the perfect location uh, for this because it allows for flying drop kicks and leap attacks off of the headboard. And it means that I can pick them up and throw them halfway across the room, you know, with a soft landing. He loves to wrestle. And I love to wrestle with him. And surprisingly, it's, it's always a fairly evenly matched fight. Now, it goes without saying, if I wanted to hurt him, if I wanted to win the match, it would be over in a second. I could end at any time. But I don't, because I love him, because I care about him. Uh, and actually because I recognize that wrestling is an important form of relationship building. Wrestling with my son... It involves touch and connection and, and teaching and guidance and trust. And, and when I was young, I would wrestle with my brothers. And, and wrestling is, in its own way, a relationship-building thing, something that teaches you so much about the other person. It's an intimate thing. It teaches you about strengths and weaknesses. And for so many brothers and fathers and sons growing up, it's an incredibly important part, actually, of bonding. So what's incredible about this story with Jacob is that God, the creator of the universe, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Holy of Holies, would be willing to engage with Jacob on this sort of a level. And it's important to note that based on scripture, it actually looks like God started the fight. It seems like Jacob was alone and suddenly there was a man there wrestling with him. So how is it that God himself would be willing to come down, to become a man, and to wrestle in the dirt with this broken and desperate and sinful man. It tells us something incredibly important about God's character. On the one hand, God is holy, and he's set apart, and he's in control, and he has complete authority, and yet, and yet, here is the wonderful mystery of the gospel. We see that he not only accepts our doubts and our frustrations, he not only tolerates them, but he is willing to meet us on our level, to literally grapple with us about the insecurities, about the questions, about the things that we don't understand, about the things that we wish were true but aren't. It's an incredible gift, and it's a promise that we can take to heart as we move forward through this Tough Question series. God is willing to, he loves to wrestle with us. And as a father with his child, God understands that the wrestling mat is a place where he can touch us and connect with us and guide us and teach us and build trust with us. And so that leads me to our second point today, which is that wrestling transforms us. It brings blessing. When this wrestling match starts in scripture here, it's unclear exactly what's going on. Who is this man? What's the purpose of this match? We're not introduced to anything. We're not told about how the fight started. It's all very dreamlike. And, and there are certainly some uh, who believe that it was a dream. 
of some kind, although the limp that Jacob leaves the fight with seems to suggest uh, otherwise. And so did Jacob know from the beginning who he was wrestling? Did it gradually dawn on him as the night went on? The man, Jacob, who always had a plan for something, always had a solution in his mind, was ambushed into this fight for his life with a stranger. And in the midst of this wrestling match, he experiences several fundamental life changes. So I want to quickly look at two of them. So first, his name changes. As the fight ends, the man asks Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob is forced to respond shamefully, my name is Jacob. My name is Cheat, Liar, Overreacher. And God says, not anymore. Now you are given the name Israel, which means one who wrestled with God and man and prevailed. This is significant on a personal level. God knows our names. He knows our character. He knows who we are. He knows where we've been. And when we enter into a relationship with him, when we're willing to wrestle, he says, I've got a new name for you. I have a new identity. You are a new creation. Um, another part of the reason why this is so significant uh, for Jacob and for us is that Israel, of course, is the name that is passed on to his descendants, to the people of God. Israel's identity as a people of God has, in a way, at a level, uh, transferred to all of us as a people of God. So this identity of wrestling, uh, the covenant that God made to Abraham is fulfilled through this family line. And it's maybe surprising in some ways because Abraham is the original patriarch that this group isn't called the Abramites or the Abrahamites or something like it. Uh, that name means multitudes or in some, in some translations or some people believe it to mean shield or protector. It's not a bad name for a group. Uh, and the group's not named after Abraham's son, Jacob's father, either. Uh, that name is Isaac, right? And Isaac means he will laugh or he will rejoice. Again, not a bad name for a group, a group of rejoicers. Instead, the name that God chooses for his people, the identity that he places on his people is Israel, is those who wrestle with God. Wrestling with God isn't an inconvenience. It's not something that God puts up with. It's what he calls us to. He wants to meet us in this way. And so as Jacob encounters God, his old identity, the trickster, the manipulator, the cheat, the overreacher, is put aside, and he's given a new one, one who wrestles with God. It's interesting to note that this is actually one of those places in Scripture where moving forward from here, the old name sticks as well. Jacob actually never stops being called Jacob. He's going to struggle with those old habits for the rest of his life. Jacob doesn't go away. But in this moment, he isn't Jacob, he's Israel. He's one who has wrestled with God and man and prevailed. Uh, his posture, of course, also changed. So we read in the passage at the end of this fight, after a long night of grappling on what seems to be equal ground, God, with a light touch to the hip, with a brush of a finger, with no effort at all, dislocates Jacob's hip and ends the wrestling match in a moment. And that limp is going to stay with Jacob for the rest of his life. Jacob immediately transitions from wrestling to clinging. As Jacob realizes the fight is over, he holds desperately to God like a, a terrified child holding a parent's leg. And he says, he will not let go until he is blessed. 
So once again, what does blessing look like in this context? Does Jacob want to receive more material wealth? Does he want to have riches and prosperity? I don't think so. Not in this case. Jacob is alone. He's truly alone. He's isolated. His father-in-law behind him with that relationship broken. His brother ahead of him, presumably out to kill him and his family. And what Jacob wants more than anything in this dark night of the soul is God, is God himself. Jacob wants to be made right in that relationship, wants to know that God is close to him, that God is with him, that God is on his side. Jacob can't stand on his own, literally, right now. And so he clings to God. One article I read put it like this. It says, Jacob wrestles with God, not for the sake of wrestling, but to become one of God's blessed children. His motivation is relational. He wrestles for a deeper, more profound experience of God's presence. We don't wrestle because we're trying to beat God or make him follow our plan. We wrestle because we want more of him. I'll say that one more time. It's a beautiful statement. We don't wrestle because we're trying to beat God or make him follow our plan. We wrestle because we want more of him. So that's point number two. Wrestling with God changes us. It changed Jacob. The third point is this. Wrestling with God helps us to get proper perspective. Jacob lived a life where he seemed to think that he had the cleverness and the smarts and the charisma and the work ethic to get himself where he needed to be. Over and over again, he would walk into a difficult situation and he either worked hard enough to get what he wanted or if he saw that hard work wasn't going to do it, he changed the rules of the game. He cheated or he tricked or he backstabbed or he lied in order to get it done. And that actually worked out fairly well for Jacob. He had a successful life. He had a large flock. He had a big entourage of servants. He had a large family. He must have felt like he had it made. But in this place, in this moment, in the story, Jacob's the lowest he's ever been. And here he is wrestling with God, which is his very nature. He's been wrestling since he was in utero. He's been grappling and clawing and scrapping for what he feels like he's owed from the very beginning. But Jacob is exhausted and he's worn out and he's broken and he's desperate. And he finally realizes that he might lose, that he can't actually win this fight. And as day begins to break and God fully reveals his control of the situation and breaks Jacob's hip, he shows Jacob's strength and resourcefulness and cunning for what it really is. Nothing in comparison to God's might and power. And so in this moment, Jacob, for the first time in his life, finally understands. He finally gets it. It clicks for him that God is not someone to be used to be called upon when it's convenient, to be carried around like a good luck charm. God is ruler. He is Lord. He is king. He is worthy of honor and praise. Jacob, in wrestling, in seeing God face to face, suddenly grasps the scale of the relationship, the bigness of God, the smallness of himself and his accomplishments and his wealth in relation to that. One commentary writer said that prevailing for Jacob, winning for Jacob, isn't pinning God. Winning for Jacob is being pinned by God. Jacob won through submission. He won through understanding his right place in the world and God's right place in the world. 
The limp that he lived with for the rest of his life served as a constant reminder. He isn't self-sufficient. He doesn't have it all under control. He doesn't have final say. He doesn't have final authority. He serves a God who rules. And in fact, that's another meaning for the name Israel, is let God rule. Jacob becomes Israel because he finally breaks down and decides to let God rule in his life. Jacob, who has needed to be in control from day one, who has fought for authority, who has fought for wealth, who has fought for what he thinks he deserves, finally lets go. And it's an important truth. It's a beautiful and and a little bit ironic thing, but a truth that I think speaks profoundly that that letting go happened in the midst of him clinging tightly to God. And so whenever there is this posture change, when there's this shift, when we admit that we have lost, when we humble ourselves, when we're poor in spirit, something incredible and backwards happens. We win. We win. Letting God rule over our lives, taking the load off of our backs, handing it over to God, it makes our yokes easy and it makes our burdens light. It puts us in the place that Paul is at in writing to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, he says, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I almost can't say those words in that order, because the hymn immediately jumps to mind for me. I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. But however you say it, the truth is this. Jacob, for the first time, knew who he believed. And for the first time, was able to trust, was truly convinced that God was able to guard what Jacob entrusted to him better than Jacob ever could himself, that God was trustworthy to keep his promises, that God could be relied on and leaned on and confided in and held on to. And so, as we head into our Tough Questions series, we're going to wrestle. We're going to wander through difficult truths. We're going to wander through difficult unknowns. And honestly, you've asked some good questions. Uh, I asked you for tough ones and you delivered. Know know ahead of time that jumping into these things, these are things that have been argued over and, and, and processed and debated and fought over for thousands of years, many of them before me. And, and we're jumping into modern issues that have a broad spectrum of opinion and belief from a lot of different folks who all love Jesus and are trying to get at the truth. This is not something where we're going to land on too many strong, definitive answers here, where you're going to walk away from these upcoming sermons going, all right, I've got my clear, black and white, perfect answer to this specific problem. But that's not really the point, is it? That's not the goal of this series. When Jacob was done wrestling with God, he didn't have answers uh, to most of his burning questions. For all he knew, Esau was still coming his way to kill him or had already found his family or another of the split-up groups. He still had these burned bridges to deal with. All his issues remained the same, except he was now Israel. He was now the one who wrestled with God and man and prevailed. He hadn't won at anything that mattered to him yesterday but he won where it most mattered in his understanding of who God is and in his place in that relationship. He won because of a heart transformation. His victory badge was a dislocated hip 
Jacob was finally ready to rely on God for strength instead of his own power or his own cunning. So as we get ready for our wrestling match over the next weeks, we believe that as we engage and process that first we are doing what God has called us to. We are living up to our named identity as the people of God, that this is something that God loves when we do this, when we're willing to wrestle with him about these things in a God-honoring way. Second, that we are allowing God through this time to change us and shape us and to build relationship with us. And third, that we are sharpening our perspective on who God is. That in doing this, what we're going to do is learn more about God's holiness, about his power, about his knowledge and understanding, and also about his love and grace for us. Whether we walk out of these messages over the next weeks uh, with 100% certainty that we have the right answer, or whether we walk out feeling that there's no way that anybody could ever have the right answer to that question here on earth, Regardless of how we feel, this is my hope and prayer for us. As we wrestle, if we do so honestly with our hearts open, I believe that it will teach us and draw us to a place where we can say honestly, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Whatever we are holding, we can give it to God and know that it's safer and better kept in his hands than it could ever be in ours. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our wrestling. And he keeps his promises. Amen.